the concerns, and this is really where I think SpeechNow and, and, and got it right, but uh, Citizens United gets it wrong. Um, you don't need to have a super PAC after Citizens United to do some of these activities. To the extent groups are doing these as super PACs, I actually have less concern. But what Citizens United allows is corporations themselves, for-profit corporations could do this. Nonprofit corporations are doing this. And they're under no obligation to file any disclosure with anybody, particularly not a disclosure that lists where they got the money from. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today. I'm Craig Williams from a very sunny Southern California. My co-host, Bob Ambrosi, is probably too cold in Massachusetts. He's off today. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and have a book out called How to Get Sued. We'd like to take this time to thank our sponsors, which is Clio, a web-based practice management software program for lawyers at goclio.com, and PC Law from LexisNexis at pclaw.com slash radio. Well, back in January of 2010, in a 5-4 to four decision in Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission, the Supreme Court ruled under the First Amendment that the government may not ban political spending by corporations and unions in candidates' elections, radically changing campaign finance law. And since 2010, there's been a great debate over this controversial ruling. In recent months, as we approach the election, the Montana Supreme Court has stepped up to challenge the decision, and Senator McCain has weighed in on the ruling by stating it is one of the worst decisions he's ever seen. So today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to take a look at the impact of the ruling in an election year and its influence on the presidential election. And to do that, we've got two great guests today. Back in 2011, our guests squared off in a debate hosted by the University of Virginia School of Law, and we're lucky to have them both on our program today. First up, we have attorney Joseph M. Birkenstock from the firm of Kaplan & Drysdale out of Washington, D.C. Joe is the former chief counsel of the Democratic National Committee. Welcome to the show, Joe. Thank you. And next, we have Bradley Smith. He's the chairman and co-founder of the Center for Competitive Politics. Brad is one of the nation's foremost experts on campaign finance law. He served as commissioner on the Federal Election Commission, resigning as of August 21, 2005. Well, I guess he was elected as vice chairman of the commission back in 2003 and chairman of the commission in 2004. Welcome to the show, Brad. Thank you, Craig. Well, Joe, let's start with you. Can you give us a brief overview of the Citizens United ruling and your reaction to it? Sure. Um, The case started out uh, as actually a fairly narrow technical challenge to a particular part of McCain-Feingold um, that restricted corporations from using treasury funds uh, to, to distribute broadcast communications. And when it began, the case was about whether Citizens United could distribute a documentary about Hillary Clinton via video on demand. Um, that's not how it ended, though. By the time the Supreme Court got done with it, it had turned into a case that overturned a decades-old prohibition on independent expenditures by corporations. Um, and so, you know, my reaction is actually a couple of different reactions to different pieces of it. Their choice to metastasize the case, I think, is one of the most controversial things about it, that this was really not a case that presented the need to revisit that question. And it, it kind of left, I think, all the litigants flat-footed in terms of how they briefed the case and how they argued the question that the Supreme Court 
chose for them to, to address, this big, broad question about the prohibition of corporate independent expenditures. With regard to the outcome, actually, I, I'm a little bit schizophrenic. Um, I, I thought that the court should have allowed the group to go ahead and distribute its, its movie, but on a narrower ground. I thought that they should have left it at a statutory case and construed the statute not to apply to video-on-demand con- uh, communications, um, but instead, that's not what they did. They, they went ahead and, and overturned the corporate expenditure ban broadly and used that as a means to allow the, the, um, the group to do what it did and I think triggered some of the ripple effects that we're seeing now. And Brad, what's your reaction and take on the decision? Well, I think it was a you know a very good decision substantively. I think it smooths out what had been sort of an outline case in the law, a case called Austin versus Michigan Chamber of Commerce. That's the case that the court overrules uh, there, and and in somewhat defense of the court from Joe's charge of sort of reaching out to grab this case, you have to understand that at oral argument uh, they basically asked the question of the government. You know, what is your limiting principle? I mean, where does this stop? Can you ban a book? And after hemming and hawing a bit, the government's litigator says, yeah, we can ban books. We have that power if they're published or distributed or financed in any way by a corporation. We can ban a union from publishing a pamphlet. So the government took a very far-reaching position. Uh, I suppose the court still could have retreated from that, but I think people should see, obviously, both A, where the government was going, and B, why the court felt that it was valuable to step in at this point in time. So what has occurred since the ruling came out? What types of problems have erupted and, and what kinds of debate is going on? Uh, Joe, do you want to start with you? Sure, I'll start. Um, I mean, I think what you've seen since the ruling, and, and, and actually, you know, at a technical level, this requires understanding not only Citizens United, but this other case called Speech Now. Um, I happen to agree with the ruling in Speech Now, which uh, allowed people to give unlimited contributions for purposes of funding independent expenditures. Um, Combining the two outcomes together is what's really led to this super PAC explosion, um, where you see groups independently of candidates um, raising and spending unlimited amounts of money on TV ads. Um, My real concern with that outcome has less to do, actually, with the amount of money being spent than of the way in which the Citizens United ruling allows people to leave the funding of that activity opaque. Without Citizens United, the donors to a super PAC would all be individuals, and they'd all be reported by the super PAC. You know, one of the little lines I use sometimes, even in talking to clients, is to recall that a super PAC is still a PAC, and it still files reports with the Federal Election Commission. It complies with the rest of the rules, and the disclosure rules in particular, that apply to all the other federal political action committees. When you introduce Citizens United and what it did to to overturn this independent expenditure provision as it applied to corporations, is allow this opacity of a juridical person to get involved in that. So a super PAC need not show that, you know, I got the money from Joe Birkenstock or Brad Smith or whoever. Instead, it could disclose I got the money from, you know, XYZ Corporation. And you may not know where XYZ got the money from. They may have generated it economically. They may have gotten the money you know, with at least some understanding that, that it would be used to engage in political activity. Um, but by introducing that, that corporate level of funding of independent expenditures, it allows people to introduce a level of opacity that wouldn't have existed without the Citizens United decision. And Joe, I'm going to have to ask you, what does juridical mean? Oh, I'm sorry. Like a fake entity. So, you know, I'm a human being, you know, you are, Brad is. <laughs> this is kind of what Stephen Colbert has been having some fun with, and, and at Mitt Romney's expense, uh, you know, he pointed out somewhat accurately, corporations are people, 
They are run by people. They have a board of directors. They are at, le- at bottom, at the end of the chain. A human being has ownership over what a corporation does. But that's the whole point. The whole point of having a corporation is having something else that can hold the contracts, that can buy the real estate, that can pay the uh, salaries, that can own the investments, that can give the money to super PACs if and when they choose to do so. Um, and so that's the point. This juridical person is its a thing that exists. We all agree to pretend that a corporation is actually something other than the people who, who make it up. But I think, in fact, that's not really the case. There are human beings behind all of these things. And in this context, at least, what a corporation does is give those human beings a way of staying selectively opaque. And I think that's where the trouble arises from. And Brad, I'm going to guess you want uh, to keep it that way. Well, perhaps a bit more nuanced than that. Let me say a couple of things. First, uh, I want to thank Joe for agreeing with the decision in speechnow.org versus Federal <laughs> Election Commission, because I and the, and the group of which I'm now a chairman of the Center for Competitive Politics were actually co-counsel for the plaintiffs in, in that suit. Um, I think that um, a couple of things. First, of course, the, the, the probably the primary impact of Citizens United, I mean, its initial first impact is simply that it allows corporations and unions to spend money in campaigns. So I do think we need to, we ought to address that issue, and then I'll turn in a moment to the uh, disclosure concerns that, that Joe raises. But I, I think in, in, on that basic core issue, I mean, the court is right, both because of the argument that it makes that, that people have a right to hear these views. You know, if you're employed or if you're, if you're a resident of a town and the, the plant that employs 300 people in this town and maybe, you know, 20,000 folks is saying, hey, we want this government policy, and if we don't get it, we're likely to go out of business. That's something people in that community really ought to hear, and they ought to hear it from that corporation. And, and I don't think there's harm in letting voters get that kind of information. Um, and I think uh, that more speech generally educates voters, and, and it's been, in that respect, a good thing. Speech Now and Citizens United, by allowing money to be raised quickly and spent quickly in races, I think, also has helped create more competition. In other words, before these two cases came down, um, if something happened in a congressional race, uh, for example, some may remember a race in North Carolina in 2010 where a congressman named Bob Etheridge was not really on anybody's watch list. He had a tough competitor, but he had won the previous year with you know 70 or 80 percent. Nobody really thought he would lose. But he ended up uh, getting kind of uh, caught in an embarrassing moment on Capitol Hill where he got into a shouting match with some students who were outside the Capitol building trying to film congressmen coming out. And, and uh, you know, he ended up like grabbing at their camera and yelling at him. And he just looked really bad. In the old days, that wouldn't have made much difference because his opponent that late in the campaign wouldn't have been able to raise much money to take advantage of that. Today, in part because of the Internet that helps candidates raise money quickly, but also because super PACs could rush into that void and put a few hundred thousand dollars quickly into that district, that district suddenly became very competitive very quickly. And in fact, in the end, Etheridge lost. Uh, and, and so in, that's one of the ways, one of the examples in which there's probably more competition in politics uh, because of the, the presence of super PACs. Now, Joe has not, you know, taken issue with that, and I, I don't know to what extent exactly who would, but he's raised the other concern that people often raise, which is that they're secret, and, and you hear this all the time. They're secret, it's undisclosed. Obviously, 
that is something of an overstatement. As Joe points out, a super PAC is a PAC. Uh, all of its uh, expenditures and contributions are disclosed. Its individual donors are all named, and its corporate donors are all named. So the real issue becomes that sometimes you may not know who the corporate donors are. That is, you know, if we see that it's a Sierra Club PAC or, you know, the Sierra Club or the NAACP or the NRA or something, people know who that is. They may not know exactly who's given them money, but they know what that group's agenda is and what they're about. The tougher one comes when you have a group with a name like, you know, Colbert's fake pack, Americans for a better tomorrow, tomorrow. Uh, nobody knows what that is. I mean, what, what's that mean? It has no meaning to anybody. And so there's a concern that voters don't know who's, who's behind this, what agenda is being pushed, and that hurts in their ability to evaluate a message and may hurt in their ability as well to determine whether or not candidates are being influenced in a way that the voter may not like by particular donors. It should be pointed out, though, that Citizens United did not change the law in that area, nor did speech now. Rather, it simply is, as, as Joe says, a consequence of the, the underlying giving law changing that uh, you might not know who's behind a corporation. I don't think this is as much a problem as Joe does. You said, you know, I'd like to keep it that way. Well, not necessarily, but it, I don't think it's that big of a problem. Usually you can find out at a minimum who is behind these sorts of groups. Uh, there's a relatively small number of people who tend to do this business. They tend to be clearly identified with Republican or Democratic parties, and simply by looking at incorporation papers, websites, you can usually find out enough to know uh, more or less where this group is coming from. So we but might want to Why have to look at it, though? Why, there, why but, not have disclosure right up front? Why have to spend well, the time looking well, it up? Well, what I was going to say, we might want to tinker with the rules there some, but basically the rules require disclosure. And then the question is, when you say, why not have disclosure right up front? Well, the, the question becomes, what does that mean? For example, here's a real-world example. Um, we'll just kind of change the names, but you have, you know, the Acme Widget Company gives money to the U.S. Chamber, and the U.S. Chamber uh, sends money down to the State Chamber, and the State Chamber pools, uh, sends its money to uh, its political arm, which is called the, uh, you know, uh, Better Tomorrow uh, PAC or something. And that group decides this year it's going to combine its efforts with what is called something like the State Business Alliance that includes the Manufacturers Association and the Retailers and the Restaurant Association. So we get a filing report from the State Business PAC, right, or the State Business Alliance, who gave them money? Well, it says that the, NF, uh, that the manufacturers gave them money, the chamber gave them money, the state chamber, the restaurant association, the retailers. Well, we said, well, that doesn't tell us anything. So who gave them money? Well, we find out that who gave the state chamber money was the U.S. chamber. Well, that doesn't tell us anything. We need more. So you go back. Are you going to count Acme Widgets? Uh, which may have, you know, had lost control of the money quite some time ago, probably had no idea that their money, so to speak, would be used in that state, in that race. In other words, it's not quite so easy to say, let's just have disclosure up front as to who, you know, is funding organizations uh, when people, you know, pay dues or, or make contributions to a group like the NAACP, and especially when that kind of group then passes it on to another entity. Well, Joe, should there be a, a, a tweak of the law that says that uh, once you give money, then that's the company or the entity that has to spend it, that there's no, that a PAC can't transfer money to another PAC, to another PAC, to another PAC? Uh, you know, the, that last part uh, that exists in some states. There are states that have what they call a ban on PAC-to-PAC transfers. Um, that's not always all that workable. And I think, the you know, Brad gives a great hypothetical there. That illustration, I think, is, is a real-world problem. I mean, that, that's not farcical. That, that's, that's a fact, actually. And if you think about it, there was no PAC involved in that chain of transactions, as I understood it, Brad, until the very end. 
you know, the Act Widget Company is not a PAC. The U.S. Chamber is not a PAC. So all these other entities earlier in that chain are just giving money to each other as trade association dues, support of a local chamber, uh, business transactions between different entities. Um, I always call this the rust, nested Russian doll problem of, you know, all right, exactly as Brad says, that I can see what's in that one, but what's inside that one? And then I open that lid, and then there's another little guy in there. How do I find out what's in that one? The way I've been thinking about this, the, the concern that I, th- I guess that I have is not so much that the public has to know exactly what's inside the tiniest Russian doll in the middle of the entire thing, but the public is entitled to know whatever the members of Congress know, whatever the candidates know. The concern, and this is really where I think Speech Now and, and, and got it right, but uh, Citizens United gets it wrong. Um, you don't need to have a super PAC after Citizens United to do some of these activities. To the extent groups are doing these as super PACs, I actually have less concern. But the, what Citizens United allows is corporations themselves, for-profit corporations could do this. Nonprofit corporations are doing this. And they're under no obligation to file any disclosure with anybody, particularly not a disclosure that lists where they got the money from. But I think it's not uncommon. I think it's, it's entirely possible that members of Congress or the candidates being supported do know where the money came from, but the rest of us don't. And that's really my concern. That's the kind of what I would like to see change in the law is some way of putting an obligation on the funders of independent expenditures to disclose whatever they've disclosed elsewhere. So if they had the member of Congress, for example, come to a trustees retreat, or they've come to do a fundraiser even as is permissible now as well, if they got to meet the people who gave the money, well, then they do know, even if you and I don't, even if there's never a disclosure obligation imposed, that public official does know where the money came from. And I think the voters and the rest of us are entitled to know whatever that person knows. Now, that's tricky. I've actually really have been giving this some thought, trying to work out a way of, of making that more than just an abstract principle and more of a, an actual rule that people could, uh, could utilize. And it certainly isn't easy, but I think it, it illustrates the concern that I really do have. You've you got to find a way to address the hypothetical, not the hypothetical, the fact pattern that Brad describes about the corporation and then the, you know, the bouncing of the money before it eventually ends up in a political ad without having to cast the net broadly enough to loop that in, but yet capture the information um, that, that public officials have and let the people have the same information and judge that official by their actions in light of what they know about the political messages that have been sent to that person. Well, Brad, what type of regulations do exist for super PACs? I mean, is this essentially an, an unregulated style of an industry, or is there really some type of kind of clamp that can be put down on these groups? Right. Well, I, I hope at this point that, that listeners are probably uh, at least somewhat confused. Hopefully their eyes aren't glazing over, but hopefully people are recognizing that a lot of this is much more complex than the snippets that make it into, you know, most political debate or under the, you know, a 600-word editorial. Um, I, I am generally, you know, and, and pretty clearly a, a deregulatory person. I think our system works better when uh, folks are allowed to contribute and spend. I do believe that disclosure can be beneficial at high levels, uh, you know, that is to say at high levels of, donate, of donations, uh, that it can be useful to know that information. But uh, as I outlined, and I think Joe has indicated uh, as well, it, it is tough to figure out exactly where you would get uh, more information uh, all the time. So I I think ultimately uh, we have both too much disclosure and too little. We have disclosure of small donors. People give $200 to a PAC, to a super PAC, and we don't have 
uh, disclosure sometimes of, of people who give three or five million dollars potentially to uh, a group that uh, uh, you know would use a, a corporate form to do the spending. Uh, how you get around that though is not going to be an easy thing, and that's what people need to understand. Well, Brad, you put this to follow up with you. You you wrote a blog post uh, on your blog about Moron Montana and sticking it to Citizens United, and uh, which I think was a follow up to charge the Montana Supreme Court takes on Citizen United. Right. What's going on in the Montana Supreme Court? Yeah. And are well, we going to well, see more that, of these challenges across the states? Yeah, that uh, that brings us back to what uh, I think most people probably think is the core issue about Citizens United, which is leaving aside the disclosure concerns that Joe raises. Should corporations and unions, uh, for many, which also benefit from the decision, should they be able to contribute at all, and certainly if they can, or to spend at all? And, and to the extent they can, should they be able to spend unlimited sums, whatever they think their treasury can bear. Uh, obviously, Citizens United struck down those kinds of limits. Uh, Montana is one of the states, and by the way, it's a minority of states. A majority of states have, have allowed corporations to spend money in state elections uh, for, for decades. But Montana was a state that has had a, a very old law that says that corporations may not spend money in the state. And Montana basically said, we're going to keep enforcing our law. Uh, the Supreme Court said in Citizens United that, we did, that they didn't see a compelling enough reason to justify such infringements on the First Amendment uh, that such a law would create at the federal level. Montana said, but we're a unique state. They, essentially, they said, we're a really, really corrupt state. And if we let corporations spend money, we'll be you know, totally dominated by corporations and, and really corrupted again. And so the Montana Supreme Court actually uh, said, uh, essentially, we don't think Citizens United limits uh, our ability to ban corporate spending in elections. Uh, I think most observers view it as a direct challenge to the Supreme Court uh, on the issue. And uh, the uh, losing party in that litigation, a group called Western Tradition Partnerships, has indicated they're going to appeal to the Supreme Court. I think some people are very excited that this might give the court an opportunity to back off Citizens United if it were to allow states to do this on the basis of their, you know, unique circumstances in the states. At least for state elections, you could probably have uh, most states could probably justify ban. I mean, every state can claim, well, we have a unique history. You know, Michigan can talk about its unique history of labor and business conflict, and you know, Rhode Island about its unique corruption and so on. So uh, it will be a test first of how serious the court is. Uh, you know, having heard the public uh, kind of backlash for two years, does the court still think they got it right in Citizens United, or does the court want to retreat from that decision? I suspect that they will say, no, we got it right, and I think they will summarily uh, reverse the Montana Supreme Court uh, without even hearing argument on it, but we'll see. Well, gentlemen, it's, it's time for us to take a quick break. When we return, we'll have more on the impact of Citizens United in an election year, and when Lawyer Lawyer returns right after this. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack is going to talk to us about the role of security in cloud computing. Jack, what about security? Are there any ethical or security-related concerns that need to be addressed with cloud computing? We're starting to see the first ethics opinions come out on cloud computing, and the early proposed ethics opinions like that from the North Carolina State Bar indicate that there are no ethical issues relating to the use of cloud computing in a law firm, but that as with the use of any third-party provider, an appropriate amount of due diligence needs to be undertaken to verify that the provider you're using has implemented an adequate level of security and privacy precautions and is essentially taking due care with your confidential client data. We've been talking to Jack Newton, 
president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. It's the office calling again. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, yeah. I need to do that, too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. That's perfect. The office can wait. Tired of all the headaches of running your law firm? Want to spend your time doing what really matters? Then you need PC Law. PC Law from LexisNexis is the legal industry's best-selling matter, billing, and accounting software. It has never been easier to manage your law firm and serve your clients. Get back to doing what matters to you. For a free trial, go to PCLaw.com slash radio. That's PCLaw.com slash radio. Or call us at 800-685-2161 today. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial play in this podcast. Just give us a call anytime at 781-551-9960 or shoot us an email at admin at legaltalknetwork.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams. My co-host Bob Ambrosi is off today. Our guests today are attorney Joe Birkenstock, former chief counsel of the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, and Bradley A. Smith, chairman and co-founder of the Center for Competitive Politics and former commissioner on the Federal Election Commission. Well, Joe, we were talking before the break about the the pending disputes in Montana and some other states. What's going on here? Why are states hearing federal election uh, matters, and why isn't that reserved to the federal government? Uh, you know, it's a good question. The, the Montana case and really the, the state cases that are following it, I would say, aren't really technically federal law cases. They are cases that relate to the U.S. Constitution. I mean, that, the reason that it becomes a, a case for the Supreme Court is the states have a, a state law on the books that prohibits corporate expenditures in that state, irrespective of the federal law that the Supreme Court overturned in Citizens United. So the question, I think, you know, as, exactly as Brad said, the question before the Supreme Court in the Montana case is going to be, is the Montana law constitutional in light of the U.S., you know, the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution? Um, I, I, I want to just react a little bit to, to Brad's uh, description of, you know, what, what he expects to happen. I think he's probably right, but I think it's actually unfortunate. Um, I, I, I think... If the court's going to stick to its reasoning in Citizens United, it has to overturn that decision. And I think the odds of them changing their minds are vanishingly small. I don't think that anybody should expect a different outcome here than, than happened in CU. But what I think that what I like about the Montana decision, nevertheless, is that it offers an opportunity, I think, to revisit the core consideration that, that was really at bottom in Citizens United. Exactly what is corruption? Um, is influence, is the kind of influence that derives from large corporate independent expenditures, is that corrupting? The court in Citizens United, I thought kind of summarily concluded that it isn't, and, and really held, I mean, in some very broad language, just said simply and flatly, independent expenditures simply cannot corrupt. 
And I think there's a little bit of a dialogue here. I thought one of the, the ideas that the Montana court had in, in writing the decision that it did was to say, look, you've held that these things can't corrupt. We have a lived experience here in Montana. We have seen this. We have seen corporate expenditures lead to these kinds of influences. Now, the state legislature here thought that was corrupting. I mean, even you know, which is striking if you think about it. The same people under the thumb of the of the influence thought we need to do something to kind of segregate ourselves from that kind of influence, and we want to uh, prohibit those kinds of expenditures. I would hope that rather than summarily reversing, the court would hear argument, would uh, go ahead and take the case fully and write an opinion that distinguishes what the Montana Supreme Court wrote from what the court itself wrote back in Citizens United, because I think it could really illuminate um, this central question. Exactly what do we mean by corruption? How do we uh, distinguish it from influence, or are we talking about the same thing there? Well, there is one example that we can directly point to. There's a situation in Iowa where a super PAC supported former Massachusetts Governor Mitt Romney, and it ran negative ads against Newt Gingrich. And Gingrich says that the spot substantially harmed his campaign. As we know, he lost. Are we going to see more of this kind of stuff as uh, when Obama goes up against the GOP candidate? What what type of limits are there on the kind? There's no limit on content. Uh, but what kind of limits are we going to see on this kind of spending? Or is it just going to be rampant and we're going to be dealing with this between now and November? Well, I, I think, uh, Craig, that what we'll see, uh, there will be a lot of spending. There was going to be a lot of spending anyway, and there will be. I mean, for example, in 2010, it, you could probably estimate that about 10 to 15 percent of the total spending in politics that year was spending allowed by uh, the Citizens United and Speech Now decisions. Uh, this year will be a higher percentage, but it will still be the, the minority of total spending when it's all summed up. And it will be uh, important, and it will be loud. There's good evidence in the social sciences that increased spending helps voters uh, to educate voters. That is actually more effective even than news coverage in doing it. Uh, people learn things about Newt Gingrich, about Mitt Romney through this kind of spending. A lot of the tone will be negative. It would have been very negative anyway. I don't think people really will, will get a different tone. So in other words, who's doing some of the spending will change. The amount of spending will go up some. But I don't think in a great sense that people, that the campaign would be run much differently, that the themes would be different, the issues would be different, or the amount of negativity would be different. Uh, I, I, you know, on the negativity, there's a data point I'm going to point to uh, last summer. And Craig, you may want, you know, be ready to, to edit this part because <laughs> the, <laughs> there's some blue language in the name of the ad itself. Super PAC last summer in a special election read an ad uh, that was titled, Give Me Your Cash, Bitch. Um, has been broadly described as the most offensive ad in U.S. history. It's available still on YouTube. Um, I think I agree. <laughs> I think it's the most offensive ad that I've ever seen. Managers to somehow combine racism and sexism uh, at, at stunning levels in an ad that I think a candidate would have never run. Inconceivable to me that a candidate would run that kind of content that a super PAC did run last summer. So I, I, there's a, is, a... Joe, is there any kind of evidence or Brad, I'm, this is just a, you know, an open question, that kind of one that we all suspect, but nobody ever asks, are the candidates really behind or the candidates' campaigns really behind these super PACs? Well, you know, they're behind some of the fundraising, Craig. I mean, that's, again, one of the, the, the questions that we're going to see play out over the course of the next year is exactly what does it mean to be independent? Um, the, the FEC has decided that it's not coordination necessarily for a candidate to help raise the money for a super PAC. 
um, which I think, you know, introduces some interesting questions with respect to other rules. I mean, that the lawyers in the audience here, those that work in the financial industry, are going to appreciate that pay-to-play rules trigger very serious business ramifications based on, quote, indirect ways of supporting particular candidates. Well, if you're, if you're giving a contribution in response to somebody's personal solicitation, that doesn't even seem to be indirect to me. That seems to be fairly direct. So I, I think there's actually a lot of collaboration that even if it doesn't meet the FEC's line of coordination, still creates a lot of collaboration between the, the independent expenditure group and the candidate. Well, gentlemen, I'm going to have to interrupt here because we're almost at the end of the program. So, Brad, I'll turn it over to you first, but we'd like to wrap up and get your final thoughts, perhaps the answer to that question of whether or not there is really uh, campaigns or behind the ads that run by that are run by super PACs. But, Brad, let's wrap up with you and, and get your final thoughts along with your contact information. Yeah, well, a quick thought on the, the coordination issue is that it is true, even though people mock it, that the candidates cannot talk with these super PACs. I actually agree with Joe. I think fundraising for super PACs is very questionable. But what needs to be understood is that you don't need to be – It's the, the easy part of running a super PAC is the tactics. That's all public information anyway, what themes you ought to hit, where you ought to run your ads. So, so the candidates really don't coordinate, but that's not really that important to what the super PACs are trying to do. In any case, um, you know, these days I uh, run a nonprofit organization called the Center for Competitive Politics. People can find that on the web at campaignfreedom.org, www.campaignfreedom.org. And uh, folks who want to reach me directly, I'm happy to take email at my work at Capital University Law School. That's bsmith at law.capital with an A at the end, uh, .edu. Great. Thank you very much. And Joe, we'll turn it over to you. Sure. Uh, I'm at Kaplan and Drysdale here in New York. Our website is uh, www.capdale.com, C-A-P-D-A-L-E. Um, my email address is jbirkenstock at capdale.com. Um, and I guess, I, Craig, I would just thank you and Brad for a you know, constructive discussion. It's been fun talking to you guys. Great. Well, thanks for participating, both of you. It's been an excellent discussion. I learned a lot about super PACs that I didn't know, and, and I'm left with more questions than ever. <laughs> Uh, I, I, I agree with you guys that uh, there, there should be some transparency, but then the question of where the money comes from and how far back you trace it is really an interesting question. And, and it uh, kind of lays open uh, a big loophole that uh, we've created with this whole situation, and maybe we ought to figure out how to close it. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much for participating. For our listeners, remember, you can now get CLE credits through West Legal Ed Center for listening to Select Legal Talk Network podcasts. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and click on West Legal Ed Center. And you can find all Legal Talk Network shows, including this one, Lawyer to Lawyer, on iTunes. We'll be back again next week with another great legal topic. When you want legal, think Lawyer to Lawyer. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. 
Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.